We'll go ahead and dismiss our children this morning to Kids Church. How many of you guys are ready for winter to be over? You know, we, we, we complain all year long that we never have a winter in Louisiana. We finally get a winter in Louisiana, and then we complain that it stays too long, right? <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24. This is quite possibly one of my favorite chapters in all of the book of 1 Samuel, uh, just because of, of its, its theme, its principle, it, it's, it's just it's one of my favorite. 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, it's a relatively short chapter packed full of, of, of really, really good stuff. Uh, so all of chapter 24. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. <clears throat> now it came about that when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And so Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and went to seek David and his men from the, rocks of the, from the rocks of the wild goats. And it came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. Saul rose and left the cave and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the ground, prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hands in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity upon you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, the edge of your robe is in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wickedness comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord therefore be the judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now it came about that when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. And you have declared today that you have done good to me, and that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. 
For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel be established in your hands. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul and Saul went to his home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray. God, as we see your providential hand in the life of David, God, may we see the biblical principles that are aligned here, that you've called us, Lord, to submit to the authority that you've placed in our lives, that you've called us to wait upon your judgment and your vengeance. God, may we have the intestinal fortitude to be able to stand to be able to trust you, to be able to do your will, your way. Well, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I pray that we will leave here submitting to God's timing. God's timing is infinitely better than our timing. God's perfection and God's ultimate plan is infinitely better than our plan. And and in our lives, I want us to understand that it is not enough that we do God's will, but that we do God's will God's way. So oftentimes we, especially in this Western world, we, we have this idea and this mindset that the ends justifies the means. That as long as we accomplish what, what, what is ultimately good, that it doesn't matter how we get to that ultimate good, that the ends justifies the means. And, and while in a lot of ways, you know, practicality and pragmatism plays itself out that way, that God is intent and God desires for his people to do his will his way. As we understand the text, we begin reading the text, it is apparent to the reader that David is going to be king. The reader knows that David's going to be king. David knows that David is going to be king. The people of Israel know that David is going to be king. It's clear through the text. Saul knows David is going to be king. David becoming king is inevitable. This is something that is going to happen. Yet David is still intent and he is persistent that that him becoming king and him receiving the anointing and him him being established as the king of Israel, that he is waiting on God's timing because it's not enough for David to fulfill God's will. David desires to fulfill God's will, God's way. And so that is something that that I want us to understand that that David's aware that he is God's man. David, uh, Saul is aware that he is God's man. David's men are aware. Everybody is aware that David is God's man, yet David is desiring to submit himself to the authority and the leadership uh, and the, the timing of the Lord. Oftentimes in our lives, we have this idea that this is God's will, so necessarily I must carpe diem. I must seize the day. But oftentimes in Scripture and oftentimes in our life, God desires for us to be patient, to be long-suffering, and trust in God's timing over our timing. 
I want us to see in the text something that, that is often overlooked and often just, just brushed aside. <clears throat> if we go back to the text, I want us to look, verse 24, I'm sorry, chapter 24, verse 5. It said, and it came about afterward, after David had cut off the hem of Saul's garment, the scripture said that David's conscience bothered him. The actual Greek in verse 5 tells us that David was, was heartstruck, that his, his heart was broken because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Now, why was David, why was David heartstruck? Why was he broken? Why did his conscience bother him? I mean, after all, he could have killed the man and all he did was cut off the hem of his garment, right? And so, and so we would think that, that David was having mercy upon Saul. David was, was showing restraint, and indeed he was. But even the act of cutting off the hem of his garment was significant. And I want to point out to you why it was significant. The robe of Saul's garment, the robe of the, the garment of the king, was, was very, it was, it was very specific and very intentional. In the book, in the Torah, in the, in the Pentateuch, God gives very specific instructions on how the robe, how the robe of the king should look. That at the corners of the robe of the king, that there would be tassels and that there would be a, a certain, a certain hem to the garment to signify the position and the ordinance of God. That God has ordained this man as king, God has placed him in this position, and it is known that by the hem of his garment. And so, much like a king would wear a crown, much like uh, the, the, the President of the United States walks around with that little lapel pin. You know, there, 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 are certain, there are certain things that distinguish the office. The King of Israel would have a hem of his garment that would be adorned with certain tassels and certain, certain uh, uh, cloths and certain linens, and it would, it would distinguish the office. And so as David walks up to Saul, and I want to point out to you the, the irony here. Let, let's, 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 let's back. We're going to get back to the tassels. We're, we're going to get back to tassels, I promise. But I want to set the stage for you because if, if, if you haven't been following along or, or, or you've missed a couple Sundays, you've missed what, what's going on. David is running for his life. He's running for his life. He finally, Saul is closing in the nooses, is closing in around David's neck, and then all of a sudden the Philistines attack and, and Saul is called away. And we pick up chapter 24 and we, don't, we aren't even told what happened to the Philistines. The reader just says, oh yeah, by the way, Saul is now back after David. And David is hiding in a cave in the wilderness of En Gedi. And as he's hiding in a cave, Saul goes in and the, the Hebrew literally says, Saul goes in this cave to cover his feet. Some of your texts, some of your Bibles may say that. Well, what does it mean to cover his feet? Well, whenever you go to relieve yourself, you generally you know, drop your pants and it does what? It covers your feet. And so Saul was literally going into the cave to use the bathroom. And he walks into the cave to, to try and find privacy because he's taken 3,000 soldiers to kill David who has a smattering of a few hundred men who, who were trying to protect him. So Saul goes into the wilderness with 3,000 trained soldiers and he says, hey guys, uh, uh, I need a few minutes uh, nature calls, and so he goes into the will. He goes into the cave, and he covers his feet, 
And as he covers his feet, David sneaks up behind him. Well, I, I just can't imagine this. You know, the man's, man's in the middle of, of doing some business and Saul, uh, David sneaks up behind him. You know, it's just, a, it's just a, a weird visual image. Anyhow, David sneaks up behind him and he takes his sword and instead of, instead of running Saul through, he swipes off the corner of his garment. Now, as he does, he comes back and his men... Are, they're going nuts. They're saying, David, here he is. He's been trying to kill you. He has spear after spear after you. He has sent, he has sent uh, a hitman after you. He is, he is actively pursuing you to kill him. And you have this opportunity. God has given him into your hand. And, and you cut off his clothes? Seriously, man, come on. David dresses them down. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But David cuts off the hem of his garment. What does this mean? When David cuts off the hem of his garment, David has rendered Saul symbolically incapable of leading. He has symbolically removed the kingly garment from Saul. He has desecrated his crown. And now the robe that Saul wears, it is now he is unfit to, to remain in that position because the, the robe that he has been worn and the, the tassels that will adorn the hem of his garment had been removed. According to the law, Saul is now incapable of leading the people of Israel. So when David does this, when David removes the hem of his garment, there is a symbolic removal and a symbolic dis- destruction of Saul's authority in Saul's leadership and David realizes that as he has done that that he has that he has transgressed God's law and that he has he has taken matters into his own hands by removing Saul from that position of authority and he is grieved and 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 he is he is brokenhearted before the Lord and many of us look at this and we say he didn't do anything All he was doing was seizing the day. All he was doing was accomplishing God's will. But David understands that it is not enough to accomplish God's will, that he must accomplish God's will, God's way. In our culture today, in our culture today, we live in a world that increasingly compromises the truth of Scripture. That we are so exposed to worldliness that we become desensitized to sin. God's Word, I'm probably not going to make any friends here, so you'll just have to uh, just smile and nod if, 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 if you disagree with me, and that's okay. God's Word tells us that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. God's Word tells us that He has a prescription that will bring us the most joy and the most fulfillment, and that is in accordance to His Word. This means that God God desires for us not only to accomplish His will, but to do it in accordance with His Word. We live in a world today where, where... Boyfriends and girlfriends 
fiancés that, that they begin living together, they begin to, to cohabitate, and they say, we're going to be married. It doesn't matter that if we're living together, it doesn't matter if we're sleeping together, because this is how we're going to, I mean, we're, eventually we're going to be married, we're going to be sleeping together, we're going to be having kids, we're going to be doing all this, so it's okay. It's okay because God's will is for us to be together. I love her. I love him. I'm committed to her. I'm committed to him. So it's okay because that's eventually God's will. But God says it's not enough to do my will. It's, you must do my will according to my way. That there is a way that seems right to man. And, and, and that is the world standard. It says, you know what, how will, I know if, how will I know if we're compatible unless we live together first? How will I know if we're able to make this marriage work unless we live together first? That is not God's ordained method. And it's okay if you don't like it. God wants us to do His will His way. It is not enough that God had, adored, God had ordained David to be king. God told David, he said, I want you to be king, but I want you to wait and trust in me. God's will must come about God's way. David was broken hearted whenever he thought that, that, that he had overstepped, that he had transgressed God's desire. And then as David walks back, look at verse 6. He said, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord. Talking about Saul, the Lord's anointed. To stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded, verse 7, that that language there, persuaded, the English does not do it justice. The Hebrew there in verse 7 says that David used his words to tear up his men. That they were, they were insisting and they were persuading David to go and to lay harm to Saul and to strike him because, because the, the time is at hand. And the scripture said that David's words, that David tore up his men with his words. He was, was violent with them. The point that, that he was about to take up arms against his own men to, to keep them from pursuing Saul. This was the, 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 this is how vehement David was at keeping them from Saul because he understood that God's will must be accomplished God's way. Because David understood the principle of Romans chapter 12, verse 19, long before Paul ever penned it to paper. Paul said, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. David understood that God's way is infinitely greater than his way. That that if David had taken matters into his own hand, that sure, he could have accomplished the exact same end, but God's purpose and God's plan and God's timing is infinite infinitely better than ours. God's vengeance is much better and much greater and much more complete than ours. If if we want to do things our way, the Scripture tells us that God will let us. That He will give us over to the depravity of our heart. And when we are allowed to do things our way, 
nine times out of ten, it does not end well. It's interesting as a parent, you try and teach your kids right from wrong. But sometimes they're just like you and they are insistent that they're going to do it their way. They are insistent that they know better. And sometimes as a parent, the best thing you can do is say, all right, you want to do it your way? Go for it. God does the same thing with us. He gives us instructions in His Word. He gives us prescriptions. There is a revealed will that He has for us. But whenever we, whenever we constantly say, but God, I want to do it this way, and I, I know better, and, and, and let me do it my way, God will allow us to do things our way and to suffer the consequences. It's interesting. I want us to point out something to you. Psalm chapter 54, David prays, and this is how he prays. Psalm chapter 54, verse 4 and 5. Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in thy faithfulness. I want you to hear the prayers of David. He says, God, destroy my enemies. In Psalm 89, he says, God, I want you to knock out the teeth of my enemies. What a godly prayer, right? It's okay to ask for God to to excite vengeance upon the enemies of God. It's okay. I am giving you liberty from God's Word to pray the vengeance of God upon the enemies of God. God, those who do evil and wickedness, may you exercise your judgment upon them. It's okay to pray God's Word. This this flies in the face of our Western understanding. It flies in the face, we're supposed to love everybody. We're supposed to to have this, this kumbaya Christianity. God is a God who exercises judgment against His enemies. There is, a reason why, there is a reason why God rained down fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a reason, there is a reason why God sent floodwaters to destroy all of the inhabitants of the earth in the days of Noah because God hates sin and He hates wickedness. And it's okay to pray the vengeance of God. What is not okay is when we seek that vengeance. It's not okay whenever we begin to be judge, jury, and executioner. We have to trust God. And David understood that. Long before Paul ever wrote it, David understood that. Read Psalm 139. David just gets done talking about how God has knit us together in the womb of our mother. And in Psalm 39, Psalm 139, not only does he praise God that we were ordained and we were set apart from before time, but in Psalm 139, look at what he says in verse 19 through 22. Oh, that thou would slay the wicked, O God, 
Depart from me, therefore, O men of bloodshed, for they speak against me against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate thee? And do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost of hatred. They have become my enemies. David is praying for God to exercise judgment upon his enemies. But here's a caveat. Here's something that God does through His grace. In Christ, the enemies of God become the redeemed. You were the enemy of God. You were the one deserving of wrath and judgment. And by the grace of God, He plucked you out of the miry clay and placed your feet upon the rock. He redeemed you. He changed your heart. He changed your soul. In Christ, the enemies of God become the friends of God. What's interesting, if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 24, we see that God, in His great grace and in His great sovereignty, has placed David under the authority of a wicked king. He has placed David under the authority. This is not the only time we see this throughout Scripture. In the book of Daniel, we see Daniel, child of God, placed under the the authority of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, a wicked king. We see in Queen Esther, in the book of Esther, we see the Savior for the people of Israel placed under the authority of Artaxerxes, a wicked Persian king. All throughout history, we see God sovereignly placing His people under the submission and under the authority of wicked people. All throughout Scripture. And what we learn, what we learn in 1 Samuel chapter 24, what we learn all throughout Scripture is that God ordains authority. God ordains authority. We see this in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Paul writes this on the other side of Christ. He writes uh, the book of Romans chapter 13, and he tells us to submit to the governing authorities that God has placed in our life. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except that which is from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. For they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon himself. So hear me now, church. Whether the President of the United States is George Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, regardless of who sits in that office, they are ordained by God. To sit in that office. And as the people of the United States, we are to submit ourselves under their authority. That does not mean that we do not stand on ethical truth, but that means that we submit ourselves under the authority that God has placed us under. And you say, Well, preacher, you don't know how how, how wicked and how evil that man is. I don't care. 
God has placed him in authority and ordained him in authority. And the scripture tells us in Philippians that God is the, uh, is the author and the ruler of all authority, dominions, powers that exist. And God has placed them in those positions. And we as Christians are to submit ourselves under those authorities. David saw the opportunity to kill Saul, but realized that God had placed Saul in the position of authority and refused to take the life of Saul and and went to bat and, and stood in between his men who wanted to kill Saul and Saul and said, you are not touching the authority. You are not touching the anointed one of God. If God wants to remove him from that position, God will remove him from that position. So this ought to inform... This ought to inform how we submit to the authority in our lives. God has placed you under authority. He has, wives, He has placed you under the authority of your husbands. Husbands, He has placed you under the authority of your boss. He has placed you under the authority of Christ as the Godhead. We should submit to the authority that God has placed under our lives. If we are unable to submit to the the human authority that God has placed under our lives, how in the world will we ever be able to submit to the spiritual authority that God has placed in our lives? If we can't learn to submit to the boss that is a jerk and treats us poorly, if we can't learn to submit to the earthly authority, we will never be able to submit to the spiritual authority in our lives. There is an epidemic in the United States, in the Western world, of bucking authority. You can't tell me what to do. I've got rights. Humility is defined by forfeiting your right to be right and placing yourself to submission under authority. It's interesting, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who had more authority than anyone ever on the face of the planet, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, when he stood before Pilate, interestingly enough, he submitted himself to the authority that was placed over him. Interestingly enough, Jesus did not claim his position as king Philippians chapter 2. Go there. I want you to see this. I'm not making this up. Philippians 2. I didn't give you this, Chris. I'm sorry. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's verse 5, verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality a thing with equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Verse 9. Because of his humility, because of him emptying himself, therefore, anytime we see the word therefore in the Bible, we should ask the question, why is it therefore? Because of what I have just said, because Christ existed in the form of God, yet he humbled himself and became obedient and humbled himself and gave himself as an offering 
Verse 9, therefore God highly exalted him. Who exalted him? Did Christ exalt himself? No, God exalted him. Why? He exalted him because he gave up his right to be right, because he humbled himself, because he submitted himself under the authority that God has placed him under. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus those in heaven and earth and under the earth should bow to the glory of God the Father. Why? Why was Jesus exalted? Was he exalted because, because he demanded to be exalted? Was he exalted because, because he said, I have the right to be exalted? Was he exalted because he said, I created everything that there is and I and I alone am the only one who is worthy to be exalted because I am the only person who is worthy to be King of kings and Lord of lords? No, he was exalted because he emptied himself. We are so intent on, on exalting ourselves and, 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 and propping ourselves up, we don't ever give God an opportunity to exalt us. I want us to notice at the very end, John chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24, David has this interaction with Saul. Saul leaves. Saul says, you had every opportunity to kill me. You didn't. David says, look, I mean you no harm. I'm placing myself under the leadership, under the subjection of your authority. Saul says, we're good. Saul goes back to his house. Where does David go? (laughs) David said, look, I hear everything you're saying, but I'm still going to go hide in these mountains. Because David understands and David trusts God, not Saul. David places his trust in God and not Saul. Why? Because David knows that God will accomplish his will his way. It's interesting. Jesus was offered the position of king. He was offered dominion over all. In Matthew chapter 4, it says in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted and to be tested by the devil. And after 40 days of fasting, the devil showed up. And he brought Jesus to the pinnacle of the mountain. And he told Jesus, he said, look out amongst the dominions and the kingdoms of the earth. If you will bow to me, I will give you all of these things. Jesus knew that it was God's will for him to be the king and to have dominion over all of the earth. Satan offered him, Jesus, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. You will have dominion over all of this. Jesus could have said, the ends justify the means. Let me go ahead and take this now. I won't have to suffer. I won't have to to be humiliated. I won't have to go through trial and scourging. I won't have to endure the cross, despising its shame. Jesus could have said, He said, deal. It's already going to happen anyway. It's inevitable. I'm going to be the domin- I'm going to have dominion over all things. I'm going to be the King of Kings. Why don't we just, just take the shortcut? Jesus understood the same thing that David understood. It is not enough to do God's will. We must do God's will God's way. The way for Christ, the way of dominion, the way of glorification came through 
humility came through death upon the cross. And for us, church, the way that God desires to exalt His church is through the refiner's fire. It's through trials and affliction. It's through the long process of sanctification. There is no shortcut to glorification. There is no three easy steps to accomplish God's will. To accomplish God's will is a life of devotion and submission to the authority that God has placed in your life. It's not easy. It's often not fun. But there is no greater joy than following Jesus. Let's pray. God, you spoke into our hearts this morning that not only do you desire us to do your will, you desire us to do your will your way. God, as your word was spoken today, Lord, it was it's inevitable that we were convicted of our own sin of our own failure to submit to authority, of our own failure to be humble, claiming we have some kind of right, claiming our entitlements. If that's you this morning, may you do business with God right where you sit. Maybe you need to repent, to change the way you think. Maybe you need to ask God for forgiveness the beautiful truth of Scripture. As Jesus said, that if we confess our sin, that He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. That judgment is His strange work and that He abounds in loving kindness. This morning, God desires to pour out His grace upon your life. God desires for you to do His will, His way. Maybe you haven't been doing His will, His way. You want to commit to do that today. It starts by following Jesus, by submitting your life to Christ. If you need to give your life to Christ today, may you come. Maybe you need to follow Him and baptized. Maybe you need to be a part of what He's doing right here at Redeemer. May today, may you honor the Lord by doing His will, His way. God, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would move in this place this morning. That those who need to come to this altar and pray would do so. That those who need to get on their knees right where they're at, that they would do so. That today there would be freedom in the house of God. Your word tells us that where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. God, may you speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.